1: Here are a few aphorisms that have been compiled by our guest today, Dr. Robert Fuller. A good answer may change a mind, but a good question can change a world. Let your questions ripen into quests. What do you take pains over? The answer is a clue to what you have to contribute. To arrive is good, to embark is better. The person who completes a quest is not the one who set forth. Each of these statements I just read invite me, and I imagine you, dear listener, to pause and ponder their meaning to our own lives. And today, this is what we'll be exploring with our guest, Dr. Robert Fuller. Robert Fuller is a physicist and former president of Oberlin College. He has consulted with Indira Gandhi, met with Jimmy Carter regarding the President's Commission on World Hunger, and worked to diffuse the Cold War in Russia when it was known as the USSR. As Fuller reflected on his career, he realized that he has been, at different times in his life, a somebody and a nobody. His periodic sojourns into nobody land led him to identify rankism, the abuse of power inherent in rank, and ultimately write the book, Somebodies and Nobodies, Overcoming the Abuse of Rank. He has become a recognized leader of the dignity movement to overcome rankism and keynoted a Dignity for All conference hosted by the President of Bangladesh. His many other accomplishments include co-authoring the textbook, Mathematics of Classical Quantum Physics, as well as the book, Somebodies and Nobodies, also Dignity for All, Religion and Science, A Beautiful Friendship the novel The Rowan Tree, a children's book co-authored by his wife Claire Sheridan, Theo the White Squirrel, The Theory of Everybody, and Questions and Quests, a short book of aphorisms. Join us for the next hour as we explore the art of asking better questions with our guest, Dr. Robert Fuller. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Bob, I want to welcome you to the New Dimensions
2: once more. Thank you, Justine.
1: We've been sitting together, both myself and with my former partner, Michael Toms, for many decades now, really discussing and looking at and delving into what are the questions we should be asking? I think that this is why this book just really popped out at me because it's it's a small book, but it's, it's posing questions. And I think of all the attributes that you bring and experience that you bring are the questions that you have brought forth throughout the, all the decades of your exploration. So let's talk about... Ooh, the importance of the questions we're asking just do you have a comment on that
2: y- yes uh, i think people tend to overlook their questions and in doing so they're really overlooking a gold mine because if you, if you can if you don't suppress your question just because you don't have an answer uh, and let it into your life and into your mind and heart, it will eventually produce an answer. It may take 50 years or may only take five or five days, but getting the question posed, I mean, put, put it this way, until something is posed as a question, your attempts to deal with that underlying problem are murky. Once you've got it in a form of a question, it almost guarantees you will find an answer. The biggest problem is not getting the answer. It's formulating something that's answerable, and that's a good question. I think of uh, I.I. Robbie, the name may not be as familiar as the name Einstein, but it's almost that familiar to physicists. I.I. I. Robbie was a professor at Columbia, where I was a young professor. And he was the first physicist to get the Nobel Prize after World War II. And he got it for developing radar, which played a huge role in winning World War II. And Robbie said once that. When he would come home from school, his mother wouldn't say, did you have a good day at school? She would say rather, did you ask a good question today? Izzy, that was his nickname, Izzy. Izzy, did you ask a good question today? I thought, what a wonderful parent. And to tune their children into the power and the clarity that results from asking a good question.
1: I'm, I'm reminded I, I just ran across a quote about the, the, the way our mind works. And um, it was a quote by um, an Israeli psychologist, and I, I don't recall his name, but he he said that when we look at what we believe or what we know, or when we're looking at questions or reality, when we look at reality reality is actually a cloud of possibility but our mind goes to wanting reality to be a single point mm-hmm. and therefore we just go into that what you just said we what we it, it supports what we believe then, and mm-hmm. then we create that as our reality or as a reality.
2: And we ignore that field of possibilities that surround the, the one choice. And it's just like quantum theory, by the way. That's the whole essence of a quantum understanding of the world is is you look at all the possible ways things could organize themselves and then when you take a measurement you collapse all those possibilities into a single thing. So that going to and fro between a field of possibilities and singling one out is the process of quantum measurement. So it's it's interesting that the same kind of structure exists uh, as you've just described it, that, was discovered only in the 20th century as the nature of reality.
1: Well, that just <laughs> opens up so much. As, as human beings, we like to nail it down. Yeah, We want to know the truth. We want to have fences around it. We want to build edifices to it and, and say, oh, man, it's all figured out. And <laughs> it's so hard for us to live in unknowingness or uncertainty. Um, well, you
2: have to go back and forth. You need some answer, but you should think of it not as written in stone, but as heuristic, as something useful that will get you to the next field of possibilities, which will contain a better answer. So an answer is like a springboard to another field of possibilities, and then you collapse that into a better answer. And we can't do without answers. We have to do something. can't just live in that cloud so we continually have to collapse it and expand it
1: so we would be saying to ourselves okay this is my best guess for right now yeah for right now but but it's up until now so to speak and then be I'm and I'm taking a breath and okay that it might be more than this yeah and in this era of great polarization um, how can we help ourselves as a society to just sort of open up to that possibility of, of knowing that it's not set in stone?
2: Well, it it really is a whole new way of looking at the world and a whole new uh, methodology of proceeding. And alas, our leaders, very few of them are acquainted with with that reality, with that way things actually are. The world doesn't think in a quantum way at all yet. Just a few people do, a small percentage. Uh, You do. People who are on your show tend to. That's what's attractive and unique about it. And But the average person in the street and our representatives in Washington don't think that way. And it will be a long, slow process until they gradually do understand reality in this more plastic and flexible way where every answer is temporary. Einstein said it better than anyone ever has. He said he could hardly wait for his theories to be invalidated and go into the dustbin of history. He said that's the fate of every theory, no matter how good it is. Eventually, it's found to have a flaw. And in fixing that flaw, we come up with a better theory. But it, too, isn't the final answer.
1: know, I don't know. You know where my head is going right now? Just this odd sort of, maybe not so odd, but I'm just thinking we're just, just today in the last couple of days, we've just come off of the election that happened for the governorship in, in Virginia and other places. And I'm noticing that of the different people that were elected to the local legislature in let's say virginia that most of them were women replacing older white men mm-hmm. did, did you notice that
2: yes and and that's happening across the country and it's going to change the nature of governance when i i, I bet it settles out at 60 40 women to men rather than the current 20 80
1: somehow i just i'm just thinking that possibly it, it, with the with the psyche of women yeah. who are tending and befriending more more or less it's a tendency of yes. the feminine psyche to tend and befriend that then that might move us closer to what we're talking about in that quantum field yeah. of possibilities rather than going for that strict, this is the only solution. I think so. Well, we'll talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Robert W. Fuller, and he is the author of many books, including Questions and Quests, a short book on aphorisms, and the theory of everybody. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, robertworksfuller.com, robertworks, W-O-R-K-S, fuller.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Robert Fuller, and he is the author of many, many books, including Questions and Quests, a short book of aphorisms, and The Theory of Everybody. Bob, one of the aphorisms that you brought up in your wonderful little book, um, Questions and Quest," is that the redistribution of wealth is resisted more fiercely than the redistribution of recognition. Can you elaborate on that? What? Why did that well, pop for you?
2: I suppose uh, I noticed, like like so many, that we actually kill off people to whom we give excessive recognition. I'm thinking of Elvis, Marilyn Monroe, Michael Jackson. They they are like queen bees who are fed special honey, special royal jelly. And it turns the recipient grotesque, and that's what happened to our rock stars, and they get so much adulation, and they often live miserable personal lives. So I saw that there was a form of malrecognition, somewhat analogous to malnutrition that can produce obesity the other side of that coin is that everyone needs recognition, just like everyone needs nutrition. You can't live without nutrition, your body dies, and you can't live without recognition or your identity becomes warped and you do insane things like shoot up innocent people in a church to get recognition. So malrecognition is as dangerous as malnutrition. And recognition is as vital as nutrition, but it has to be in proper proportion. And I think human beings will prove capable of giving each other the recognition they actually deserve. We tend to worship rock stars excessively, as I just said, and we worship geniuses and so on. And Everyone else is regarded as second-rate compared to these people who on, upon whom we heap so much recognition. But actually, I've noticed among the young especially that they're more aware of each other's contribution and they're more willing to acknowledge uh, the importance of other people in their lives. It's not so much a stand-on-your-own-two-feet world. People or young people especially are willing to accept help and ask for it and willing to grant recognition and give a round of applause to the people who prepared the food at a conference, not just the professors who were at the conference. I've noticed this. And I think as we begin to acknowledge each other's contribution, recognize each other's contribution. We, in effect, support people's dignity because that's what people need to feel that their dignity is healthy and intact. They need to feel they're contributing and and they need to be acknowledged for their contribution. So I see a field growing up in parallel to the field of nutrition, but this time focused on recognition. And as we get better at understanding the essential role played by other people in our own work, Uh, be it just supportive, like the guy who changes the oil in my car, or be it more directly related to my work, in the sense of someone reads my stuff and says, I think you're wrong here. And in hashing that out, it improves it. Uh, We are, in fact deeply, profoundly interdependent on one another. We're social animals, and our mutual recognition has lagged that understanding. It's going to catch up, and when it does, I think we're going to have a world in which paying one person 500 times what another worker gets is regarded as ridiculous, because you can't You can't distribute money in a way that is contrary to the distribution of recognition. Recognition and money and salary ought to bear some relationship to each other. And as you understand the vital contribution everyone makes in a company, a good company, you begin to undermine the rationale of paying the boss 500 times what the secretary gets. 300 times the world is already on to this there have rules in scandinavian countries that no one shall be paid more than 10 times what the secretary is paid what the lowest paid worker in the company is in this country it ranges up to a thousand times what the lowest paid worker is so i'm saying that's a really tough problem you try to redistribute money and you won't get very far first let's redistribute recognition as as we should have done, because it's not only the right thing to do, it's true. And then the redistribution of wealth and assets will follow.
1: So that takes us to your work in the dignitary movement and and what that means and rankism and and i know that your work has taken that all the isms uh like racism or homophobia or all of sexism that it takes it, the underlying the underlying premise that is that they're all based on is rankism
2: they're and- all instances of rankism they're all abuses of power predicated on the idea that one person or one group is superior to another group or person, that uh, therefore they outrank them. That was the case in the days of segregation and Jim Crow, where all white people felt superior, inherently superior to people with darker skin. And it's persists today in a milder form than it did 100 years ago or 50 years ago, but it still hasn't been eradicated because underlying racism and sexism and all the isms is essentially a predatory relationship to each other. And I'm using that word a little differently. Of course, I don't mean that we prey on each other like lions and tigers do, but I mean that it's we are a predatory species, and you see this in the economic sphere. You see it in the social sphere where one group will advantage itself relative to another group by claiming superiority and putting the second group down. That's rankism, and so long as we permit rankism in any form, we can't eradicate completely eradicate instances of it of the, like racism and sexism. Those are both cases where whole groups of people regard themselves as inherently superior to other groups, and therefore they should get privileges. And, the, and they maintain that by denigration and by disrespect, and by actually enacting laws that make it harder for the people in the subordinated group to rise socially and rise economically.
1: Right. I, I, so I'm wondering about like, all right, socially and economically, that is a reality in our our present situation. I mean, we. But when we talk about like raising everybody up, then the people come in and say, oh, that's socialism, and here in the U.S., that's just a, like a dirty word.
2: Yeah, except you know? Ber- Bernie made it less so. That's true. He really made it less so, and so what is socialism? Socialism isn't anything specific. It's it's a greater awareness of the contribution of everyone to what it is a society produces, and accordingly, fairer compensation for everyone in that production. Socialism has a lot of fairness, built into it. As an economic doctrine, it's flawed just like capitalism is. And we will need some combination of the two to really thrive economically because so far uh, the countries that have tried socialism and communism haven't done as well economically. So there's something valid about the capitalist process.
1: I was just thinking of communism like an extreme form of socialism. Yeah. might have been might be described as communism where it it got off kilter that it wasn't fair even so much so that it that like the USSR just dissolved. Yeah. You know.
2: Yeah, it violated all its own principles and essentially settled very quickly into a dictatorship. And so it wasn't a real example of communism as conceived by certain French and other uh, political thinkers in the 19th century. And Marx and so on I'm not touting any of those in their present form but I do think capitalism is flawed and I do think we can come up with a better combined system that preserves the independent initiative that characterizes capitalism that's a good thing that results in Silicon Valley that results in in the productivity enhancing inventions that we're famous for so we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we do want a fairer system and as i was saying before i think as we understand the validity of more equal recognition we will infer properly that we ought to compensate people more equally and do away with these extreme differences which are actually producing a bigger and bigger gap in wealth between the rich and the poor so we really have no choice but to do something about it, if we don't, we will lose our democracy.
1: Well, you mentioned earlier that you see in young people today yeah. that they there is a tendency for them to, to understand the interconnectedness of, of all of us, that we are holding each other up, whether we're a janitor or, or food server or or a CEO of a tech company. Exactly,
2: the- very very well put. I see it in my own kids and grandchildren. They're just not as competitive in a nasty way as my generation was. Competition itself is okay. It helps you get the best out of yourself if it's if you understand that it's not ultimately making one person superior to another, but it makes you superior to your former self. So a certain element of competitiveness is useful. But uh, young people have taken the brutality out of com- competition. The, the sense that you're disgraced if you lose. The sense that winning is the only thing. All those old aphorisms are dead, really, are dying uh, in, in the younger people of the world.
1: Well, I, I think we see this reflected too in at least here in the U.S. in our politics. It's either or. It's win or lose. It's uh, and that's that's the whole game. Not on the policies that that might bring us all up together. I I, I just, it, at least that's my viewpoint. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm seeing. Well,
2: those policies that might help raise everybody and reinvigorate the American dream, which is crucial. Without that, we're not America. If the American dream dies, America dies, in my opinion. So, and and it has become less and less feasible to be sure, to, to make sure that your children do better than you have. So th- th- that that's going to be a crucial thing. And and I think the young people are going to, as they come into maturity and come into positions of power, both in business and in government, I think they're going to uh, be, demand more fairness.
1: I'm here with Dr. Robert Fuller. He's the author of Questions and Quests. I'm here with Dr. Robert Fuller, and he is the author of The Theory of Everybody and also Questions and Quests, a short book of aphorisms. And if you want to know more about the work of Dr. Fuller, you can go to his website, robertworksfuller.com. That's robertworks, W-O-R-K-S, fuller.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Bob, we were just talking about uh, um, the social contract and where we are. And you made a statement at some point that really summarizes just what we've just covered. And you have said, future generations will be puzzled by how long it took us to realize and acknowledge our interdependence and rewrite the social contract accordingly.
2: That's one of the aphorisms in questions and quests. And, uh, yeah, it's been very, very slow progress during my lifetime.
1: But you have contributed to it throughout your lifetime from all... I, I, I think of you primarily. I mean, I know your training has been in physics, but primarily you're an educator. Mm-hmm. And I was always uh, struck by the idea... That when you talk about education and talk about even a classroom situation, that it's all about there's nothing we can do unless we have the attention of the person that we're we're trying to uh, communicate with. Doesn't that go across the board in like in partisan politics? Everything like whether we're in a classroom teaching children, if we don't have their attention, nothing is going to happen. So how can we have the attention, let's say, of someone across the aisle politically?
2: Wow. Politically, it's hard. I mean, I would start in the schools, and the the shift that needs to happen there is to get the students' attention, you've got to be talking about something they actually are troubled by or concerned about, instead of, in contrast to imposing a curriculum on them, which they couldn't care less about. So, until we make that shift and put students at the center of learning, not at the receiving end, but uh, at the... At the beginning, where we take their questions seriously and help them get in touch with their questions and then respond to those questions, that handles the issue of, of the center of attention and gets their attention. I actually tried this in a high school in Seattle some decades ago where I told them up front, I will only talk about things you say you want to know about now. If you lose interest in the next few minutes, I won't keep talking about that anymore. I'll only talk about the thing you're interested in then. So we played that game for a whole year. And the uh, quality of learning shot up just enormously once you make the teaching student-centered That's a trend which can be seen all over the country at every level. But it's, again, slow to take root because we still think of education as training people for a job niche. Well, none of those niches last very long anymore. So we have to train them, not for that, but in general techniques of asking good questions and coming up with temporary answers to them.
1: One of the... uh Sections in your book, questions and quests, is about robots and AI, uh, artificial intelligence, and I I know that. Wow, let's let's talk about that. What do you see? What are the questions we should be asking about that, and what are what are the concerns that we might look at mm-hmm. as we go forward into this twenty first century?
2: Well, the main question to ask about the robots who are, who are coming into our lives is. How can we befriend them? Because they are going to, within a few decades, really challenge our supremacy, our exceptionalism. People tend to think that just because robots have made a wire and have electricity running through the wire, wires, that, that they're fundamentally different from brains More and more, though, it's beginning to look like brains are a particular kind of computer. And once we understand how they work, exactly how they work, we'll be able to build computers that are as good as, or even better than, the brains we've acquired through natural selection. So uh, that poses the biggest challenge humankind has ever faced. We've always been, as long as we've been, (laughs) around for millions of years, 100 million years. The planet's been around for 4 billion. Life evolved on it. It, Its most intelligent creatures appear to be human beings. And uh, they have lots of flaws. And sometimes the brain doesn't work properly. And we call that mental illness. But we are on the verge of really understanding how it works. Just the analogy would be with the heart. There was, for thousands of years, people thought the heart was the seat of the soul. It was like a sacred thing. It was where love came from. Well, the heart turns out to be a pump made of muscle. And once you understand it as a machine, you can fix it when it breaks down. You can put in a new one, like we replaced the battery in our cell phone. So that's what's going to happen, I believe, and so do most neuroscientists. Namely, we're gonna build machines that work just like brains, but are made of copper and silicon instead of being made of flesh, being made of cells. And the brain is not going to be the seat of the soul any more than the heart was. The brain is going to be viewed as a machine, and when we build better ones, those robots with better brains are going to change our relationship to the world completely. it's as great a threat as climate change and nuclear war, but it's not quite being addressed fully yet. The threat, I mean, of robots who regard us as their inferiors. Now, if we handle it properly, we can make it more like what happens when the children and a family grow up into adulthood the children are the robots and they're gradually getting maturing and getting smarter and more competent. And eventually they're more so than their parents. And we are the parents of these robots. They're going to grow up and mature and they're going to become smarter than we are. We could then uh, expect from them some filial devotion. And if we handle them right, if we enslave them, They're going to rebel eventually, and then the scenario in all the movies will come true. They will get rid of us. But if we handle them properly, respectfully, and treat them with dignity, they'll treat us that way. And our role will be changed, but it won't be eliminated. We can keep our dignity if we will give up gracefully our preeminence.
1: That's, that's big. All right. You've just given a, <laughs> a huge premise, and I, I'm going to have to ask you some questions about it. Um, yeah. Um, I, I'm reminded of um, something some years ago that MIT came up with, and they figured out that they could, with computers and artificial intelligence, they could figure out a better way for Bali to work with its water system because they had a whole system of sluices and when to open them for the next on the mountainside, down the mountainside, so that all the different people and farmers down the mountainside had the right amount of water for their rice paddies. And they did a whole bunch of stuff there, and they came up with a solution for Bali. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that their solution didn't, didn't come close to the way to the inherited agreements that all the farmers had with one another through the generations it was much more accurate it was much more effective yeah and so the commuter, computer just failed it just it sure. it didn't it didn't come up with it so i'm reminded of that and well we
2: can't be arrogant that that that, that those mit fellows were a bit arrogant thinking that they could trump the uh, inherited historical wisdom of the society over thousands of years. You, sh- you shouldn't approach it and figure that, that your th- model, your theory of the thing is going to beat that collective wisdom. But that won't always be true. H- humans have their limitations. There are a lot of things we haven't been able to solve, and we could welcome the help of artificial intelligence in solving it. Right now, AI is very limited in what it can do. It can it can beat us at checkers and chess and even go. And even more significant than that, it can it, it can. Uh, we can create machines that can beat the machines that beat Go, beat humans at mm. Go. So, your example is a cautionary one, and it shows the dangers of arrogantly thinking that our, our scientific theories are going to trump human wisdom. But that doesn't mean they won't always, uh, that, 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 that human wisdom will always trump. Good modeling. There are many places where good modeling has already trumped human wisdom, and then not in Bali, evidently, but there are many problems for which very serious mathematical modeling does better than just a human uh, intuition.
1: Do, do you have, recall a, an example of that?
2: Well, uh, an example might be traffic patterns or weather prediction. Uh, the the weather prediction now is based on very complex mathematical models. They're still far from perfect. It was supposed to rain here today, and it isn't. But they're better than asking a farmer uh, about the weather or looking in the farmer's almanac. So modeling gradually uh, it has produced cars that are safer than the original ones. Some of these changes are come about because of the intuition of, of auto engineers, and others come about with computer simulations. So there there's a great tool here that most naturally has a role to play in our economy. We still don't model our economy successfully. We still make economics decisions in a political way. And we don't, have an agreed-upon common model. But we do have such models in the physical realm. And, for example, we landed a man on the moon using this kind of thinking. And so it, it has a role to play. It's very much a work in progress. But what is apparent to most neuroscientists is that we're gradually but inevitably going to produce models that are better than human intuition, Bali notwithstanding. Even what they've got in Bali, no matter how good it is, probably could be tweaked to be even better.
1: Right, right. I want to remind our listeners that I am here with Dr. Robert Fuller, and he is the author of many books, including Somebodies and Nobodies, Overcoming the Abuse of Rank and Dignity for All, How to Create a World Without Rankism. Religion and Science, and also Questions and Quests, a short book of aphorisms. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Robert Fuller, and we're talking about, at this point, AI or robots or artificial intelligence, and so many questions come up for me. Two questions, one about spirituality and the other about um, mind. Mind as beyond the workings of the brain. Mind, uh, I'm thinking of um, how going to quantum physics about entanglement and, and how... Uh, what is it called? Spooky action mm-hmm. at a distance. At a distance yeah. And that, you know, w- what about the mysterious component of mind that is is not associated so much with the physical brain?
2: Well, the, the, that's an intuition that's going to be subject to a lot of close in- inspection and some of that will be found to be just vague talk. And, and other parts of it are going to be properties that are just as true of the machines we build as they're true of the machines, the brains that build them. People always assume that mechanisms are heartless, spiritless things. Well, I don't think they are. I think as they get as complex as the brain, they will be just as spiritual as the brain. Why would they be different? Just because they're made out of something different material but they're nowhere near as complex as human brains yet. They can do specialized tasks and do them even better than we do them, adding big numbers and uh, calculating our income taxes. All those things, machines already do better than we do. But the creative stuff, they don't do better than we do. And some people think they never will. But neuroscientists are beginning to think, why not? I mean, they'll be built out of different materials, of course, than brains are. But maybe they will have the same more ethereal qualities that brains do once they're as complex as brains. And that's going to happen this century. It may be a giant flop. And if we treat those those beings that we create as slaves... They're fairly apt to turn on us and do us in, as in almost every sci-fi scenario ever imagined. But if instead we recognize that as they get as complex as we are, and as they uh, get smarter and smarter, they will also have the other properties that we pride ourselves in, properties that are more ethereal, properties that are called spiritual. They will hate slavery just like we do, if they're as complex as we are, and if they work like our brains work, why would they not also hate slavery? So we better not enslave them. We ought to befriend them instead as they as they as we do our own children. We befriend them as they grow into maturity, and we seed a certain, Expertise to them, we recognize that they're better drivers than we are when they're 30 instead of 80, and they're better basketball players and they're better mathematicians. So we can give them their due, and uh, the only way all this can be wrong is if it proves absolutely impossible to build machines that are general-purpose machines that are creative and work like we do. I don't think it will prove impossible.
1: So. You're, what you're saying is that this goes to your whole idea of creating dignity for, for yes. all, of, all of life, including AI life. That's uh,
2: right, Justine, exactly. Dignity for all. All means all. All means cats and dogs and people and robots. As they, as they evolve from the lifeless pile of copper and silicon they are now into beings— which threshold we're going to witness as they acquire our numbers? We have a hundred million neurons. As they are, then these robots will not be limited in size or in speed of communication. The speed down your nerves is two meters a second. When you stub your toe, you 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 can tell it's going to hurt in about two seconds, <laughs> and that's how long it takes for that signal to travel through those neurons. Uh-huh. Well, in, in in the wires we're going to be built, it will take a nanosecond mm-hmm. to travel that distance. And we're going to have way more than a hundred billion synapses. So there's no reason to think that these things won't be able to solve some problems we we can't solve. They'll be able to plan the economy better if we you know if they can devise more comprehensive and synthetic models that perhaps synthesize communism and capitalism just to put crude labels on two alternatives. So I think the big, the big realization, it comes in, Tony Morrison wrote this, this book in which the mother actually kills the child because it doesn't want the child to suffer slavery. Well, that's how these robots are going to feel. As they gain consciousness, they're going to present their second-rate treatment by human beings. And if we do it too long, they're going to rebel and do us in. If we gracefully accept their arrival on the scene and take our place in the great chain of being along with the robots, there's no reason they won't treat us with dignity. So again, if we will cede our preeminence gracefully, we can come away with our dignity.
1: So it's kind of like saying that, that leap from a primate to a Homo sapien, somewhere that leap, you're saying that there's another leap to happen. There's another
2: leap that's about to happen. It's happening in this century. And this it, time it'll be by intelligent design, our intelligence.
1: So, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, and you can help me out AI or robots that it comes down to, besides all the synapses that we'd make and everything, it all comes down to the microcosm. It's about energy and matter. It's about electrons and and protons, and it's about, from that atomic level, it's all the same. We are all the same. The robots are all the same because it's all the same
2: universal Material. It's the same constituents. It's just protons and neutrons and electrons, and and whether it emerges through natural selection and the process of human birth and all, or whether we build it in a laboratory is secondary.
1: So that leads to the possibility that it would become complex enough. Yeah, you're saying that you think that it will in this century, in the 21st century, that it will that this this Entity can, will become complex enough that it will surpass our supremacy. Uh, it as
2: will it, surpass our capabilities and it will therefore achieve supremacy. And they'll be nice about it if we're not too mean to them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if we treat respect their dignity as they become conscious.
1: So respect your robot uh, vacuum cleaner. (laughs) Well,
2: he's not complex enough. Okay. He's he's a single-purpose machine, like an icebox or a refrigerator or a car. It's a single-purpose machine. The thing about us is we're multi-purpose machines. We can do so many different things, nothing like it so far on Earth. But we're about to build things like it and then improve upon it. And that doesn't degrade us or diminish us. It puts us in the great chain of being, and we can be proud of Homo sapiens' contribution to that chain of being. It wasn't a bad show we put on, and we finally topped ourselves.
1: So, Bob, who should we be watching? Who should we we be reading to help us understand this better? Who who would you suggest? Uh,
2: There's a good popularizer called Eagleman, and and there's uh, well there there are a whole slew of them uh, mentioned in these books you've been uh, mentioning, Justine, Uh, a whole slew of neuroscientists and people working on this, Uh, Elon Musk, of. Te- Tesla, Tesla, the yeah. Tesla car. He's interested in this, and Silicon Valley has people in every one of the firms you know working on AI now. It's the next big thing, and it's it's going to. It's already filling the newspapers,
1: and then and then also virtual reality. Is, that's something else. It, that's a whole. That's something st- quite that's
2: an- quite different. That creates an experience for you as if you were really in the Grand Canyon, but you're wearing a headset that. Gives you that experience. Okay. Okay. That also, all the big companies are working right. on. Right,
1: right. So that's separate from AI and, yeah. and robots. Yeah, but they'll probably from-
2: overlap in some ways. But I'm, I'm putting my attention on how can we cope effectively and and well with the advent of general purpose machines that are as good or better than we are. And the apparent loss of dignity that that entails. Yes, of course, I feel it too. I don't want to be replaced by a robot. None of us will. But I didn't didn't want to discover that I was worse at everything I'd prided myself on growing up than my kids are. But I've had to admit it. (laughs) They are better at everything, pretty much. I let them drive, not me and, and everything else. And that's the way it's going to feel. We have to see decision making to these beings who bring so much more to making the correct decision than we're capable of doing. We're limited uh, mentally and we tend to forget that because we seem to be smarter than rabbits and tigers and (laughs) and worms and everything, birds, but it's just the state we're in at the moment. We're going to take our place, as you put it a little while ago, uh, as a species that launched another species, robo-sapiens.
1: Ah, well, more to come. <laughs> Very interesting times. Thank you so much, Bob, for being with us today.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me.
1: I've been here with Dr. Robert Fuller. He's the author of many, many books, including Questions and Quests, a short book on aphorisms, and The Theory of Everybody. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, RobertWorksFuller.com RobertWorks W-O-R-K-S, Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website NewDimensions.org I'm Justine Willis-Toms You've been listening to New Dimensions This is program number 3626
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973 thanks to the generosity of our listeners This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions.